In the story before us, we're met right away with some important details. After crossing the Sea of Galilee, Christ and company arrive in verse 1, the country of the Gerasenes. And we need to know already, right out the gate, that the Gerasenes are a Gentile, that is a non-Jewish people. The region of Galilee, uh, which Jesus was in and they were moving across the Sea of Galilee, was often known as Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, due to the large number of non-Jewish residents who lived within this area of the land that was promised to Israel. And so Jesus and company not only cross a sea when they come to the city of Gerasa, they also cross a religious and cultural divide as well. They enter into a place of darkness in which the light of God's word does not shine. A place where men and women worship the powers of darkness and call them their gods. In so coming to this place and to this region, Jesus, the holy son of God, has stepped onto enemy turf. That's what we're meant to take away from this verse. And verse 2 makes this very apparent to us, as Mark notes that immediately, as he stepped off the boat, there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus enters into a dark and unclean place, being a land of the Gentiles, and is right away confronted by a man who lives in the dark cellar of this dark place. And it even doubles down on the uncleanness of the whole affair, because he lives among the dead. So we have an unclean place with an unclean place within that place, the tombs and the dead, and this guy just doubles down on it, and he comes out of the dark as the (laughs) most appalling sort of thing to a first-century Jewish person. He's a man who lives among the tombs, he lives among the dead, and resembles a a first-century sort of walking dead figure. (laughs) So look further at how he's described in verses 3 through 5. The man who came out of the tombs, in verse 2, is described as living among the tombs, in verse 3. That is, he lives among the dead. Death is his companion, his partner. He does not live among his countrymen and neighbors. He does not walk among the living. But he's been ostracized. He's been exiled and banished from the city, sent away from the polis to the necropolis, the city of the dead. Because of his demonic possession, he cannot live among the living. The living and the dead, it's clear here, they don't mix together. And we see this confrontation between life and death developed in the description that follows. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Mark gives us a flashback, as it were, into this man's story, into his life prior to Jesus coming that day. He says of him, And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, and night and day among the tombs, and note, that's the third time Mark refers to him as living among the tombs. He's very emphatically suggesting to us that this man is the walking dead, that he embodies the power and presence of death as an assault upon the life-giving power and presence of the one true God. This man who night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying, he was always cutting himself with stones. And so we have this kind of mixture of a first century walking dead figure with an incredible Hulk thrown in. Nobody can subdue this guy. No one can stop him or restrict his destructive activity, whether it's directed at himself or directed at others. He possessed a superhuman strength that no one in the city uh, was even a match for him. And so off to the tombs he went, 
And the people, they lived, imagine this, in the shadow of his terror. Day and night, they were reminded of the presence of death. They were reminded of the threat of dark and evil powers as they heard this man's howls and screams and otherworldly groans coming from the tombs, dictating the cadence and rhythm of their lives like an insidious bell tolling in the middle of their town. Just like the, the rooster in my neighbor's backyard that cockadoodle doos every morning at the same time and wakes me up. Like an alarm clock that you cannot snooze. The demoniac, he howled and howled and reminded the people as he did day in and day out. Death is here. It's just around the corner. Spiritual evil is real. Be afraid. Your lives are at the mercy of death personified in this one demon-possessed man. Just imagine that. Imagine that constant reminder day and night. What would it be like to live under that threat? With the knowledge that darkness and death are here and that there's nothing you or anyone else can do about it. The people in this city, they must be terrified. They must be anxious and weary of always carrying this weight around with them. The Gerasenes, they have an unsolvable problem. Death looms before them, and none are able to stave it off. None are able to subdue it or even bind the, the spiritual evil in any way that terrorizes their lives. But then Jesus comes to town. And in verse 6, the flashback of verses 3 through 5, it comes to an end, and the narrative returns to the present arrival of Christ. And as Verse 2 indicated that when Christ stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man uh, out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. And verses 6 through 13, it brings us into the confrontation that followed when the man with the unclean spirit and the Holy One of God met upon the shore. So the first thing that Mark tells us in verse 6 is that when the man saw Jesus from afar off arriving upon the shore, that he ran. And he ran toward him, and upon arriving at him, fell down before him. The first thing that Mark tells us is that the personification of death and darkness cannot even stand before Jesus. As soon as they come face to face, he falls to his feet. This would be like an instantaneous knockout in a boxing match. This would be like a tap out in the MMA ring as soon as the match began. Jesus' opponent simply falls before him. And as he falls before him, already signaling Christ's superior power and signaling his own defeat, what follows is that he tries to begin to negotiate his surrender <laughs> to the best of his ability. And so we see this in that the first recorded words of their exchange, they're not even fighting words. <laughs> they're far from it. They're words of begging for mercy, not any kind of battle cry. Verse 7 tells us that the man with the spirit falling down, crying out with a loud voice, said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I assure you by God, do not torment me. In other words, he says, why have you, the holy son of God, the son of the one true God, the one to whom I'm in rebellion, why have you come out to me? Whatever you're here for, he's saying, it can't end well for me. For light and dark, goodness and evil, holiness and uncleanness, the God of life and an agent of death, these things don't mix. 
And not only do they not mix, but when push comes to shove, it's light that overcomes dark. Goodness and justice, which overcomes evil. God's holiness, which will not abide by anything unclean. And the God of life in whose presence death does not belong. And so the demoniac, rightly perceiving all this, and what's more, rightly perceiving who Jesus is, while applying to him in verse 7, the highest title, the highest uh, Christological referent we've seen of Jesus so far in Mark's gospel, calling him the son of the most high God, he attempts still to bind Jesus by an oath. He wants Jesus to agree to go easy on him. (laughs) In other words, he says, I adjure you by God. Leave me alone. Just get out of here, please. I'm begging you by God. Just, Just go. Jesus, leave me. Spare me for now. And with this, we have quite a stunning turn of events. The man who terrorized the town is now begging the carpenter of Nazareth for mercy. This one has fallen low and is begging for his life at the feet of Jesus. And all these words from him are coming as a response to the words to him that Jesus utters in verse 8, where it says that he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus' word of command was stronger than any chain that had failed to bind the man. The one that could not be bound was now subdued. And in a short time, the demons within this man would be sent away. And this language of binding, it reminds us back of Mark chapter 3, where Jesus described his own mission and ministry as coming to be the one who would bind the strong man, that is Satan, and plunder his house, that is free those who he was oppressing, the captives, people just like this man. Christ has said that I've come to do a work of defeating Satan, of destroying his works, and of freeing the captives who are under his influence and persuasion. And so Jesus is casting out the demon from this man, and he's kicking the presence of death to the curb in the country of the Gerasenes. But interestingly enough, as this is happening, before the demon is banished, Jesus, he asks him a question. In verse 9, unlike any of the other exorcisms that we've read so far in Mark, Christ follows up the command of the, uh, of the demon to be cast out by asking him a question on the way out. <laughs> in other places, we've read that Jesus silenced the demons, but here he has a conversation with him. And on the way out, he says, what is your name? And now, Jesus doesn't ask his name to try to gain some sort of, you know, uh, like supernatural, mythical upper hand on him. Like he needs this information to bind the demon like they thought in the ancient world. Um, But instead, he asks him his name, um, not because he needs to gain control. He's already very much clearly in control. But he asks him his name in order to emphasize the extent of which the demonic oppression has overtaken this one man. And he does this asking him his name for our benefit and for our encouragement. For the demon-possessed man, he replies in verse 9, he says, My name is Legion, for we are many. As it turns out, this one man wasn't just possessed by one demon, but by many. This is what the name indicates. In the first century, a legion was a Roman military unit that could contain up to, get this, 6,000 soldiers. The point here is that an army of demons within this guy has come out to fight Jesus, and the one Jesus has brought to their knees an entire army of demons. He's brought them to a halt, to a surrender. And in what follows in verse 10, we see the demoniac beginning to negotiate 
the terms of this surrender. The demons, they express, are afraid of being cast out of the man, uh, but they realize that this is coming. This is inevitable. Um, but they beg Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. They, w- they don't want to be sent out of this region. And they plead very strongly not to be sent away from this geographic area. And that's a curious question to us. Why would they not want to leave this place? <laughs> um, why would the demons want to remain here? And there's the theory that their power might only be, you know, active in a certain geographic area. That's why they want to stay here, because they're powerful here but not there. Or perhaps they didn't want to be banished away to a remote area where they couldn't, you know, possess and control people any longer. We're not sure exactly. But whatever the case, we're sure that whatever happens next is in Jesus' hands. And that's the point for us here. And as it would so happen in verses 11 through 13, as they're seeking to negotiate their surrender, they see a herd of pigs. (laughs) Pigs along the hillside. And the demons... Seeing these pigs, asked if they could go and possess the pigs. And what happens next is both theologically significant and it's just downright humiliating for the demons. They ask to be sent into the pigs um, and they are allowed to do so. But first here, and what's significant about this in in these pigs? We need to note uh, that pigs were also considered to be unclean animals in the first century. Under the Old Testament and the Jewish law, not only was the place of the Gentiles unclean, not only was the tomb unclean, anyone who would be contacted with death unclean, but the pigs were further unclean. So like goes with like, death goes with death. The demons see these pigs as a fitting host for them to inhabit. And so here we have a host of unclean spirits requesting to enter into a herd of unclean animals, and the demons rightly recognize they don't belong in the presence of Jesus and they request to enter these unholy vessels. And as bizarre as this might uh, seem to us, Mark details this out for us uh, for a reason. Uh, The upshot for us is so that we could see as much as possible just how much Jesus is in the driver's seat here in this situation to show to what extent his power exceeds the powers of spiritual darkness, that the demons would make this kind of request uh, to him. The power of this walking dead man has been brought to nothing. And each successive attempt or line in the story uh, is him being mocked and demoralized. The terror of the town is asking permission to possess a pig. How far he's fallen in his might and his power over the people. And it's a, a permission, interestingly enough, in verse 13, that Jesus grants. He gave them permission to enter the pig. And in so doing, he yet again signals to us, and this is the important part for us, that there are no powers outside of his control, whether they be a natural power like a storm or a supernatural power like a spirit. There's no powers outside of his control. Think about this. Let this sink into your heart. If demons in this scene must ask permission to enter unclean pigs, how much less are they able to run amok in the lives of God's holy people, cleansed and purchased by the blood of his son? If they have to beg Jesus to possess a pig, can the powers of darkness wreak havoc in your life of their own accord? Absolutely not. Satan cannot just have his way with you if you are in Christ. Though he is a prowling lion, He's also a defanged lion who cannot snatch us from God's grip 
and whom the Holy Spirit empowers us to resist. Yes, the presence of spiritual darkness and evil does remain in the world. We don't deny that. Satan's work to, to tempt and to accuse and afflict God's people is real. It's uncomfortable and something to be endured. But as we endure in this life as Christians and await Christ's return, we don't have to live in constant fear of demonic activity. We need instead, and we can instead, live with constant trust that Jesus is Lord and acknowledge that there is nothing we experience that's outside of his control. If the demons, church, must beg him, if these malevolent, evil, supernatural forces who don't require sleep, who don't require food, who can be anywhere and everywhere and control and possess and have superhuman strength, if the demons must beg him, there are no forces, be they satanic, demonic, occultic, there's no force out in the universe somewhere, or some kind of nebulous fate out there that can overrule God's good purposes and promises in our lives. There is nothing this indicates that we experience that comes to us or comes at us apart from the sovereign rule of our good and gracious and powerful King who has committed himself to working out all things in our lives for our good to the praise of his glory. We can rest in this comforting truth as we deal with setbacks, adversities, circumstances that are outside of our plans and outside of our control, we must rest in the confidence that they are not outside of God's control. We are not in control. And that might strike us as bad news, but the better news is that God is in control. And even the demons must ask him permission. Continuing on, with this permission granted, Mark records that the unclean spirits, they came out and entered into the pigs in verse 13. And that herd, numbering 2,000, again, a large number corresponding to that large number as uh, defined by the legion, they rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. The demons at first appear to be spared. They're allowed to go into the pigs. They have their geographic request granted, but then they rush headlong into a watery grave. And if you're surprised by this, just imagine how the herdsmen felt as they watched their entire livelihood go off the cliff. <laughs> they stampede down the hill, and they subsequently drown. Now, pigs can't fly. We know this. You get ready for it. But they can swim. <laughs> so what happened here? What went wrong? Why did the pigs seem to get the request granted and then go crashing down into the water, into the sea? Well, depending on how we interpret this event, the demons within the pigs are either uh, crashing down into the sea and they're left homeless, as it were, without a host to inhabit, or they're banished to the abyss, as Luke records it in his version. That is, the underworld prison that was below the waters of the earth, the depth of the depths, and that they were going to this watery prison, to this grave, to the abyss, to be consigned, as it were, to a spiritual imprisonment, to a spiritual binding, where they would await the day of God's final judgment. So effectively, Christ sends them to spiritual prison, to jail, where they're going to await his second coming, in which he will fully and finally erase and eradicate every promise or every presence of evil, as it were. And so, in either case, they're homeless, they're in jail, I'd opt for the latter, but in either case, the demons are demonstrably defeated by Jesus 
in the observable death of the legion of pigs. That's the point. The people who are watching this, the disciples, the herdsmen, the townspeople can see, hey, the demons were in the guy, they're in the pigs, the pigs are dead, <laughs> problem solved. Christ has overcome the forces of death in this man. And so the herdsmen, they see this, and what a sight this must have been for them. And they probably were thinking as they were watching this from afar, right? Just try to put yourself in their shoes, these pig farmers. First, they might be thinking, hey, who is this guy who's about to be thrashed by the demoniac? Doesn't he know we've tried this before? And then it was, whoa, who is this man that the terror of our town now bows before? Two, who is this man that just sent our herd hurtling headlong to their destruction? Who is this guy? They would be astounded. They would be startled. They would be freaked the heck out. And so what do they do? They get the heck out of Dodge. They run to town to tell people what has happened. And they say, come see this. This man just did this. He just got off the boat, and all of a sudden our pigs are destroyed, and the demoniac has been defeated. you got to come, come see this. And the people being curious, they come out to see what has happened. And verse 15, as they do, they are met with a scene as the rest of the town comes to see what has occurred here on the hillside that is simultaneously utterly serene, and unnervingly shocking. Remember the effect that this demoniac had upon the people. He was the bell toll, the rooster crow, the alarm clock of death in their lives. He was the personification of spiritual evil that threatened their daily existence. He was their tyrant and their terrorizer, always looming on the edge of town, always living in the back of their minds. So with this in mind, take a look at verse 15 and how Mark describes what they found when they came to where Jesus was. He writes that this man, they see as, he, they, as they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, remember him, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And speaking of this astounding sight, of the demoniac's altered state, James Edwards' commentator says that this, what they come to behold, him sitting there clothed in his right mind, is a great picture of discipleship and salvation as we see a restored individual sitting at the feet and enjoying the presence of Jesus. The holy presence he was once banished from, he now delights in. The man who could not be controlled by any other. He is now self-controlled. He is able to maintain himself, and he is not out of sorts. The one who kept company among the dead, he's now sitting before the Lord of life. The one who was night and day yelling and screaming and howling, he's now silent and is experiencing peace for the first time in who knows how long. This is the effect that meeting Jesus has had upon him. And so trying to pull this into our experience, parents, <laughs> It would be like coming home and encountering your, your wildest, messiest child seated at the dinner table with their hair combed, all nice, napkin in their lap, elbows off the table, and perfect manners being exhibited as they proceeded to eat everything, everything you put on their plate without whining and sit still the entire time and not make a disaster zone of the table, of their face, of their hair, or their nearby siblings. It would be like that kind of shocking event to witness. It would be like witnessing the gnarliest biker gang member sitting down for a tea party with a little girl who commanded his utter attention and exact obedience. It would be like witnessing a man sharing a meal with a grizzly bear 
Who was not attempting to make the man and what was ever on the table a part of that same meal? You would say, what? how does this man eat with this bear? <laughs> Maybe more close to home in our city. It would be like witnessing one of our Santa Ana neighbors whom we pass by often and encounter under the influence, perhaps, of drugs and alcohol, speaking angrily to someone who's not there, carrying on outside without any place to call home. And then one day, you come to your favorite restaurant next door, and you find them behind the counter, at the cash register, working a job, clean, sober, in their right mind, and they take your order. <laughs> they make small talk with you. They leave their shift, they go home in their car, and you say, what happened to them? Just yesterday, I saw them, and they were beside themselves. Here they are, under control, in their right mind, among the living yet again. In all these cases, you would say something like, how is this possible? Is this even the same person? What power could so change this toddler, this biker, that bear, or that individual not in their right mind, that they now sit before me in perfect peace? This is what they come to see when they come upon Jesus and the man, and they just have no categories or expectations for what they're now seeing. The people are face to face with the reality that the terror has been tamed. The man of death now fellowships with the living. The fearsome power within him has been defeated by a power that is greater. And because of this, Mark records, they were afraid. Though Jesus had solved one problem for them, he himself now appears as another greater problem. And get it, the people here, they don't want a new terror in their town. They've been terrorized by this spiritual wrecking ball. Christ then comes, and if he could bind the demoniac, then Jesus has a supernatural power that cannot be suppressed or stopped or controlled or resisted by them. The power of Jesus, in other words, is out of their control. And that strikes fear into their hearts. And this fear is further compounded when the herdsmen in verse 16 begin to describe the fullness of the events that took place before they got there and they bring the people into the story. And the people all the while as they're thinking and as they're listening, they would be thinking to themselves, this guy is mightier than our greatest foe. That makes him even more scary. And for this reason, we shouldn't be surprised by what happens next in verse 17, where Mark records that upon witnessing the man and hearing the herdsmen, the people began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Just as the legion begged Jesus not to send him out of the country, just as he begged to be sent into the pigs, the Gerasenes begged Jesus to leave. And with the same sort of desperation, these Gerasenes, they want to be rid of the presence of Jesus and spared from his power in the same way the unclean spirits wanted to flee from him. And so theologically speaking, they're unnerved by Jesus' power. They're unsettled by his purity. They are in the presence of the Holy One of God, who's just triumphed over the darkness. Yet, in the presence of his light, they are now made aware of their own inner darkness. And they want Jesus and his holiness to get out of town. This leads us to a surprising takeaway as we read the text. What's scarier than the powers of darkness? The pure light of God's presence. That's scarier. That's more fearsome than the power of darkness. The holiness of God's presence is far scarier than the unholy power of Satan. 
For in the light of God's presence, all of our darkness comes to light. We are no longer hiding in darkness, deceiving ourselves, but we become vulnerable and exposed before the one who is pure light. This is the scariest place imaginable if you continue to walk in darkness, if you have not trusted in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sins and unrighteousness. In this case and in this scenario, apart from that trust in Christ, that true surrender to Christ, your fate is just like the fate of the demons. Destruction, judgment, wrath in the presence of the holy, righteous God. This is the scariest place imaginable if you have not had Christ's blood cleanse you of your sins. And so in this way, what's far more concerning than the invisible powers of Satan is the invisible power and presence of sin that exists within every one of us. For sin it is that leads to death. It's sin that Satan uses to accuse and to condemn us in our consciences. It's sin that tempts men and women so that they might fall deeper and deeper into his bondage. And so this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus, hear this. Sin is far scarier than Satan. And in coming to defeat the powers of death and evil, Jesus has come more than anything to deal with the problem of sin. And this morning, he's willing and able to save you from your sin. This is true. He calls you to acknowledge the sin in your life as your attempt to live apart from God, to live without reference to God, to live by disobeying God and in loving other things more than the God who has made you to live before him. Acknowledge this sin and turn away from it with the trust that what Jesus did on the cross, that because of what Jesus did upon the cross, that if you confess your sins, listen to this, he is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you come, he will not cast you out. Believe upon him this morning and like the demoniac, you can enter into his presence at his feet and live forever among the Lord of life. He will not cast you out. But though he will not cast you out, Jesus does take his leave from the garrisons. And though the people have no power over him, literally, it's kind of like he himself is being cast out from the scene. And in another parallel to the exorcism, on Jesus' way out, he's asked a question, just like the demoniac asked a question and is begged, just like the demoniac begged him. When the demon was taking his leave, he begged Jesus twice. Now, in verse 18, with Jesus taking his leave from the region, the former demoniac, he begs Jesus that he might be with him. He wants to go wherever Jesus is going. He wants to be there. He wants to follow him and be his disciple. Unlike his countrymen, he does not want to remove himself from the presence of Jesus, but wants to remain in the presence of Jesus. His power and purity do not repel, but attract him. And so it is with everyone that Jesus has rescued. God's holiness, which was the former number one fear of sinful man, now becomes to us appealing and attractive. Having been delivered from darkness, we long to be in the presence of our God, who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to live. And so, believer, ask yourself, is holiness attractive to you? Are you drawn toward God's holy presence? If so, be encouraged that God's, by God's grace you're walking in the light. But if not, and if this morning you 
would prefer to be at arm's distance from Jesus. If there's something unappealing about moving closer to him, spending more time with him, being around other believers, ask yourself why. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Have your appetites for the things of God shrunk and shriveled up over time as you've taken in a steady diet and course of caffeine highs and junk food joys from the world? Has your spiritual appetite been upset? In your mind, really think about this. Do the words holiness and happiness seem to be in direct confrontation, direct contradiction? Does that not go together? If any of these land upon you this morning, understand that God's holy presence is where we find life and where we are meant to live our lives. He is opposed to anything that looks like, tends to, or leads toward death, any darkness or sin in us, because not only is he righteous, but because he loves us. He wants us only to have life and life abundantly and to be freed and rescued and delivered from every trace or stain of sin and death. This morning, if this lands upon you, respond to the truth of God's holiness with confession, with pursuit of that holiness, and with a renewed trust that happiness and holiness um, go together. (laughs) That happiness, the happiness to be found in God's presence is far better than any happiness that can be found apart from God's presence. Long to be with Jesus, just like the demoniac longed to be with Jesus. However, as the story continues in verse 19, this is actually a request that Jesus, he doesn't grant to him. In verse 19, it says that Jesus, upon receiving this request, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Though we might think it kind of unusual or unkind or or mean of Jesus to deny this man who earnestly begged to follow him, there's something more going on here. And listen to what scholar R.T. France has to say summarizing what's happening here. He says this, the reason for the refusal is rather the positive one, that this man has an opportunity, which is uniquely his, to spread the good news of what God is doing through Jesus of Nazareth among those who have known what he was before and who therefore cannot ignore the dramatic change which has resulted from his encounter with Jesus. In other words, he's being sent to his own people who knew what he was before so that they cannot deny the result and the effect and the power of Jesus to work in his life. And so Jesus says, you go to them and tell them of me. He is sent out to his home, to the Greek and Gentile cities of the Decapolis, to tell them what the Lord, the one true God of Israel, has done for him to tell his friends and his neighbors how the Lord has changed his life. And in this way, prior to the formal issue of the Great Commission and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, through the saving and the sending of this man, Mark is foreshadowing to us that the good news of God's kingdom is good news for the whole entire world. Mark 5, 1 through 20, it tells us that Jesus will extend the light um, of his reign to even the darkest parts of the world. That he will liberate those held in captivity to demonic power, persuasion, and deceit as the truth of the gospel goes forward in the power of the Spirit. And the former demoniac, he anticipates this reality as he goes home to declare how much the Lord has done for him. This is his task. And verse 20 records for us that he runs with it. He goes home. Having been sent by Jesus, it says, he went away and began to proclaim the very same word used in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, of Jesus proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. He goes to proclaim in the Decapolis how much 
listen to this, Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. In a subtle but theologically telling way, Mark records that he identifies the work of the Lord, the Most High God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He identifies that work directly with Jesus. He says they are one in the same. He goes out to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom to the Gentile people. He declares that the one true God of Israel is working in and through this man, Jesus, to deliver men and women from the forces of darkness and death. He's sent out as God's instrument to till the soil of their Gentile hearts, to make them ready for the seed of the gospel to come and take root in their hearts and to produce new life. God is using him to repair these current pagan peoples to become a part of his own people as the gospel would come forth in its fullness, to go to them and declare the name of Jesus, the one who takes away the power and sting of death and darkness, and to prepare the people to receive the fullness of the gospel message to come after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the one who in short time would deal the death blow to death and his own death upon the cross. The one who would come to dethrone Satan, the ruler of this world, as he was enthroned upon the cross. Who would cancel the record of debt Satan would use to accuse his people on that same cross. Who would himself, Jesus, taste death, be buried in a tomb, just as the demoniac lived among the tombs, and then be raised from the dead, never to die again. Who, in his resurrection, would demonstrate that the devil, he who had the power of death, has been defeated, and that all who trust in him have no need to fear death any longer. For even death, Paul says in Romans 8, shall not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of what Jesus has done for us, there will never be a time when we are separated from his presence with us. Not now, not ever. This is good news. There is no future we have apart from him. This is the good news the man was sent out to proclaim, that he was once among the dead but has now been raised to life with Christ just as we have been likewise. This is the news he was eager to share, and this is the news we ought to be eager to share with our friends and our neighbors as well. So are you eager? Are you eager to share this news? Even in a world full of spiritual warfare and deception and darkness, we should be eager, just as this man was, to go out into all that and to share this gospel message. A few considerations as, as, as to why. Because Jesus, into this demon-infested Decapolis, he doesn't send the healed man out as an exorcist, but he sends him out as an evangelist. He sends him into a dark place where what's needed most is the word of life, the gospel. We have the gospel. We don't need to be fancy exorcists and spiritually powerful, you know, study the things on the internet and you go look up all the different, you know, spiritual warfare things. No, we don't need all that. We just need the gospel. People need the gospel. The upshot for us is that confronted with the reality of spiritual warfare, is that the strongest weapon we have is the sword of the spirit, the word of God in the gospel, which is the power of God to save those in darkness as it testifies to the victory of the Son of God over sin, death, and the devil. And so, church, very simply, we should expect spiritual warfare, this text teaches us, but then go evangelize. <laughs> expect it and evangelize. And even when someone you're speaking to may not seem interested in what Jesus could do for them, take the man's approach here in, in the story, and instead, tell them what the Lord has done for you. Just like the demoniac, they cannot argue with the change in you. And through that testimony, would the Lord work 
to open their eyes to the wonder, to the power, and to the goodness of Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of life. The Lord of life whose lordship is unrivaled in every aspect of our lives. We have the confidence this morning that nothing shall ever frustrate his good and sovereign rule over our lives, and not even death itself shall separate us from his presence or purposes for us. He's worthy of our entire lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you. We thank you that you stared down death and you emerged victorious, that you, through your own death, put death to death, that you conquered Satan and the darkness and the sin that led us to and held us in the grave. We thank you that you emerged victorious such that we can trust you with every aspect, with every facet of our lives, knowing that nothing is out of your good and wise plan out of your powerful and sovereign control. We ask that you would fill us with faith, that you would fill us with trust, and that you would help us to glorify you, even as the man you healed in Mark 5 went out to testify of your goodness to his friends and neighbors. Glorify yourself and as we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll